electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. All right, welcome back to Last Call, everybody. We've got a big show for you tonight, but first we're going to begin with some breaking news on a somber note. Legendary investor Charlie Munger, vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway and right-hand man and best friend of Warren Buffett, has died at the age of 99. Becky Quick has a look back at Munger's extraordinary life and career in both business and investing. Charlie Munger was best known as Warren Buffett's right-hand man their investing partnership dating back decades. I would say that every time I'm with Charlie, I've got at least some new slant on an idea that, that causes me to rethink certain things. And, and we've had absolutely, we've had so much fun in the partnership over the years. It's been almost hilarious. It's been so much fun. Buffett credits the Berkshire Hathaway vice chairman with teaching him the importance of paying up for high quality businesses. When he weaned me away from the idea of buying very so-so companies at very cheap prices, knowing that there was some small profit in, and looking for really wonderful businesses that we could buy at fair prices. It's not that much fun to uh, buy a business where you really hope this sucker liquidates before it goes broke. The willingness to pay for quality paid off for Munger and Buffett in deals like their 1972 purchase of C's Candies and their decision in the late 1980s to buy a substantial stake in Coca-Cola. Before his Berkshire days, Munger owned his own successful investment firm and practiced law. In 1962, he and a group of attorneys founded Munger Tolls, now known as Munger Tolls and Olson, a very prominent law firm. Munger, like Buffett, grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, and as teenagers, they both worked at Buffett's grandfather's grocery store, but not at the same time, as Munger was seven years older. It wasn't until Buffett was in his late 20s and Munger was in his mid-30s and living in California that they were introduced to each other by mutual friends. We had dinner together in 1959. In five minutes, Charlie was rolling on the floor laughing at his own jokes, and I do the same thing. They began to spend hours each week on the telephone, talking investments, and Buffett urged Munger to trade in a career in law for one in investing. I met Charlie, and he was practicing law, and I told him that was okay as a hobby, but it was a lousy business. <laughs> so he, he Fortunately, wanted... I listened. <laughs> From 1962 until 1975, Munger's investment partnership produced a 19.8% compound annual return versus just 5% for the Dow. It wasn't until 1978 that Munger formally joined Berkshire as vice chairman. But Munger's even-tempered, risk-averse, and pragmatic approach to investing was a major influence on Buffett from the time they first met, helping Berkshire Hathaway grow into a multi-billion-dollar conglomerate that owns well-known businesses like Dairy Queen, Geico, Hellsberg Diamonds, and Burlington Northern. Munger, however, didn't limit himself to just Berkshire. He was chairman of Wesco Financial from 1984 until 2011, when it was totally assimilated into Berkshire. During those years, he was known for his deadpan humor and straight-shooting style at shareholder meetings, where he interacted at length with his investors. After Wesco, Munger moved the show and his growing collection of fans to another company where he remained chairman, The Daily Journal. Charlie? Yeah. One of my favorite lines from you is you want to hire the guy with the IQ of 130 that thinks it's 120, and the guy with an IQ of 150 who thinks it's 170 will just kill you. You must be thinking about Elon Musk. (laughs) (laughs) He brought his blistering one-liners to Berkshire Hathaway's annual meetings, too. What I needed to get ahead was to compete against idiots. And luckily, there's a large supply. Professional traders that go into trading cryptocurrencies, it, it's, it's just disgusting. It's like somebody else is trading turds and you decide I can't be left out. Charlie's big on lowering expectations. Absolutely. That's the way I got married. My wife lowered her ex- expectations. <laughs> And despite a net worth of around $2 billion, for Munger, money wasn't everything. All you succeed in doing in your life 
is to get early rich from passive holding of little bits of paper, and you get better and better at only that for all your life, it's a failed life. Life is more than being shrewd at passive wealth accumulation. Well, with that, we're through. Powerful stuff. And uh, Becky Quick joining us now on set. Wish he was obviously under different circumstances, but welcome. I do too. Thanks, Brian. He uh, was a friend of you. I mean, he's yeah, not just a guy you talked to. He was a friend. Charlie's been my friend for a lot of years. Um, and, and his partnership with Warren Buffett is pretty amazing. It goes back a friendship of almost 65 years. Partnership in the business officially of closer to 46 years. Uh, but Charlie really shaped what Berkshire Hathaway is. Warren Buffett putting out a short statement tonight saying, Berkshire Hathaway could not have been built to its present status without Charlie's inspiration, wisdom, and participation. And he means it. Um, he's, he's talked in the past about how Charlie is the one who convinced him to see deals differently. He'd been a student at Ben Graham's and was very much about value investing. Uh, Charlie had a broader vision of what you should be doing instead of picking up uh, decent companies for really cheap prices. He said, Warren, you should buy great companies for good prices. And as, as a result, that is why Berkshire Hathaway has become uh, this behemoth that it is today. They own great companies and they own them basically for forever. I mean, we saw, their, we saw their camaraderie and that's not fake, is it? Like no. that's not, You know, some people, you know, they want to fake it, the partners or whatever. This is a true friendship and partnership. It really is. Kind of like Statler and Waldorf. It's kind of, <laughs> yes. it's kind of, it's that was not good. Right? That was terrible, yeah. you know, but they, they played off each other. They did. Um, and, and that is uh, something that I think is going to be really tough to see the next Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting in, in May um, because that, that camaraderie between the two of them and the way they played off of each other is so much what that was all about. Charlie's 99 years old, um, 99 years old and 11 months. He was going to turn 100 next month. On January 1st, he even had a birthday party planned. On January 1st? On January 1st. His birthday was January 1st. He had a birthday party planned for New Year's Eve. Would have turned 100. Would have turned 100 years old. And I actually got the chance to sit down and talk to him a couple of weeks ago. We were planning a special to air around his 100th birthday. Um, but obviously, we'll, we'll put something together a lot sooner with that. I want to tell you a little bit about um, some of the things he said. He mm-hmm. sat down with him and got the chance to really reflect on his life. And here's a piece of that. Charlie, Warren Buffett told me that a long, long time ago. You told him he should live his life. He should write his obituary the way he wants it written and then live his life accordingly. Yeah, sure. I I assume you've done the same thing for yourself. Well, no, I've written my obituary the way I've lived my life. And if you want to pay attention to it, it's all right with me. And if they want to ignore it, that's okay with me, too. I'll be dead, but what difference will make? And so... But I think it's a good, it's not a bad idea. Listen, Warren and I both live in the same house for decade after decade after decade. All our friends get rich and build better, bigger and better houses. And naturally, we, can, we both considered bigger and better houses. And I had a huge number of children, so it was justifiable even. And I still decided not to live a life where I looked like the Duke of Westchester or something, and I, I was going to avoid it. I did it on purpose. Why? I didn't think it would be good for the children. That it would spoil them? Yeah, it, it's... Well, in a rich family, you think your duty is to use the wealth to live grandly. That's what everybody's doing with the money. You will learn from the people who are doing it. Is the the plan for your life, the obituary you would write in your 30s, the same you would write today? Sure. I, I basically believe in the, in the soldier-on system. Mm-hmm. Lots of hardship will come, and, and you've you got to handle it well by soldiering through. And lots of, a few rare opportunities will come. You've got to learn how to recognize them when they come and not they make too minor a trip to the bike counter when the opportunity is available. And those are simple lessons. Well, Soldier On, 
Charlie definitely did. He had uh, hardships that came into his life. We'll talk to him. Uh, uh, we'll talk about some of those issues he had later in the week with things. But he also talked about going up to the pie table when you get the chance. Those are the opportunities he said that he and Warren Buffett had on a handful of times where they really knew that they had a great deal when you, when they were convinced that they could buy something at the right price. They said, sidle up and, and fill your plate. And they did many times. Was, was Charlie the only one who could truly check? Could he check Warren Buffett? If Warren Buffett yeah. said, I'm going to buy this company, if, could Charlie talk him out of it? Yes. Warren, Warren called Charlie the abominable no man. The only <laughs> one who could convince him that it was not a great idea. Now, Warren probably went ahead with his ideas a few times, too. But if somebody was going to be able to talk him out of it, it, it was Charlie. Yeah. And the wit and wisdom. There's things. Charlie was not afraid to say exactly. And I learned from you. I mean, I never met the man, but I watched you all your interviews and I could tell you probably had used the, you had your finger on the, the bleep button a few times. I didn't. Somebody in the back. So, somebody did. It was one fly. time I, Munger said something to the effect of um, you could replace EBITDA, mm -hmm. meaning earnings before interest, whatever, with bullcrap. Right. 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 And I and I and I it's a family friendly show. Like yeah. he was not afraid to just be direct. No, which is one of the best things about listening to Charlie is he would say exactly what he saw, what he thought. He wouldn't sugarcoat it. I will tell you, I was probably more afraid of interviewing him than anybody else before I got to know him well, because if Charlie thought you were asking a stupid question, he would tell you. Um, but he also was very rich with his praise, too, and uh, handed out compliments to a lot of people. Well, it feels like an honesty level, which may not exist much anymore. I think you're right. Because now, listen, I get it, and I appreciate you and I, you know, we interview CEOs, and most of them, if we ask them, and I've asked plenty of stupid questions in my life. Same. I admit that. <laughs> and the CEO will look at you, and you can see their eyes. They're thinking that's a stupid question. Mm -hmm. But they say, that's a great question, Brian. Right? Because they're, they're trying to just be nice. Yeah. Charlie wasn't like that. But he was Charlie, nice. Charlie believed but in he telling was direct. the truth. He was direct honest. Direct in telling the truth. And um, that's incredibly valuable. And I, I think that's one of the things that Warren has praised him about in the past, that he would tell you exactly what he thought, the unvarnished truth. Um, and that's a real gift. Did you guys ever talk about, I can't remember all the interviews, and, and you, you know, some of the, the best TV CNBC ever did was you and Buffett and Munger and Gates and just sort of, you know, at the annual meeting. Is there anything about any of these interviews that mostly stuck out to you that you remember the most immediately, like, you know, call your family, like, Charlie Munger just said this? No, I will tell you, um, one time when I traveled to China with the three of them, mm. um, we were in one of the FBOs uh, waiting to get back on a plane to go somewhere else. And I remember Charlie and Bill Gates having a back and forth about nuclear power. And they both know so no, much interested. about so many things. <laughs> And they both know so much about physics and how things work. And I don't remember exactly what the disagreement was about, where they didn't agree on some point of conflict. And I remember just sitting back and thinking, wow, um, the smartest people you've ever heard discussing these things, they each have incredibly valid points. And they each come at it a little differently and just being kind of blown away. Were they disagreeing? But, yeah, they disagreed. And I, I forget what they, they were talking about. Scram, Sam, the crazy axe man at the University of Washington when they were first doing research on some of these things. And the idea was if the nuclear reaction went badly, it was his job to take the axe and chop down something that would shut down the nuclear reaction. It goes way back in history. I don't remember yeah. the exact point yeah. that they were going back over, but I learned a lot. Just to be able to listen sitting to there, that. To sit like, there and listen to They're it. not on camera. It's and totally can, unfiltered. Right. They're just talking. And, and they both, all of them, know so much about so many different things. To be able to have that level of a conversation and get that deep into the details where they each know something that is so powerful, I don't know who was right. Was but I know they both, they both knew so much about it, it was mind-blowing to watch the conversation. What was Mr. Munger's role at Berkshire Hathaway? You say vice, vice chairman. But vi I know, but vice chairman can mean a lot of things. What did he do? I think he was, A, the moral authority at Berkshire Hathaway. Um, I think he was the sounding board. I think Warren has said himself that Charlie Munger could look at any deal, any potential deal, 
and dissect it faster than any person on the planet in terms of what would work, what wouldn't work. He had this incredibly analytic mind. He was a lawyer, like yourself. I'm not, not a the, lawyer. The, the, that's the ding, same thing, Charlie. Another ding-dong with a law degree. No, no, too many of us. That's what Charlie Munger said to me, too. I think he's never been more irritated than when I called him a lawyer. He said, I'm not a lawyer, because he was so many things. He was a guru, essentially, of somebody who was learned in physics and mathematics and meteorology and well, uh, learning psychology. Is for, you know, effectively 99 years learning. Yeah. It was a learning machine, too, which is what he's called Warren Buffett. But he was a learning machine and who knew all of these different things. And um, did he actually probably this is one of those stupid. Remember those stupid questions I told you I asked? This is probably one of those stupid questions. Did he actually invest like Warren or was he just sort of just there to be the sounding board? Or did Charlie have his totally own investment portfolio? Oh, sure. And No, he had his ideas too, BYD being one of them. That okay, was one but of they the were under they the Berkshire together. umbrella. Yeah. So he'd also so, bring ideas, not just sort of say... And Costco. He was on the board at Costco, but Costco was an investment that Berkshire held for a long time until, I think, 2020 when they sold the stake. Must have been a good one. So those are the types... They definitely each had their own ideas. They collaborated. They did their own things. But Charlie was, you're right, much more than just a vice chairman. And I know you just, it's, you said his birthday is J- January 1st, supposed to be 100. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just sat down with him. Um, little, I, probably an awkward question is, are, are, we, are we still going to do the special? Because I'd love to, I'd love to, I'd love to yeah. hear from him. We were going to put it together for closer to his birthday, but we're pulling it together for this week. It'll be later this week. Okay. Well, I also know that you have to get up in like four hours for Squawk Box. So... Brian, you, thank you for having me here. No, it's, you can't. Well, listen, I, I wish he was under completely the time different circumstances. Talk about him because he was an incredible man, and I'm, I'm glad we have the time to do And it. I can tell that you're feeling it. Yeah. He was it's an emotional. He was so I appreciate you being here. It's not, a, uh, not an easy time. People think that we just come and talk on TV, but you, you make relationships with some of these people, yeah. and they're, they are your friends, and it hurts just like a friend. It does. But so. thank you. I, I appreciate having the time to talk with you. No, we, we appreciate your insight. Nobody has it like you. Becky, thank you. And uh, I have a feeling we'll, we'll hear much more about this tomorrow as well. We will. Becky, thank you. All right, we are going to have much more on the remarkable life and legacy of Charlie Munger later in the hour. But right after the break, we've got some big breaking news to the world of basketball and a big sale, apparently. That's breaking. And you'll hear it here next. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. All right, just uh, actually getting off the phone. Got some breaking news in the world of sports, literally breaking right now. Billionaire Mark Cuban, obviously well-known to the CNBC audience, is selling his majority stake in the Dallas Mavericks to the Adelson family. I can confirm that. CNBC can confirm that deal. Now, Cuban paid $285 million for the team in 2020. Guys, that's not a report. We have got this. I'm confirming it right now. Uh, CNBC confirms that Mark Cuban selling the majority, his majority stake in the Dallas Mavericks to Marion Adelson. Now, there's there's some. Let's just kill the prompter, guys, because I just got off the phone. And I'm gonna tell you what I just learned. There's some interesting dynamics to this deal. Okay, you're gonna hear that the valuation is three and a half billion dollars, which seems low for an asset like the Dallas Mavericks. But here's why this is the most unusual sale, I think, in the history of the in modern NBA. Mark Cuban is going to retain control of basketball operations. So that will have a, he'll still have a minority stake in the Mavericks, 
but will have operational control over the team and its operations. What does that mean? Well, according to my sources, what that means is that while Miriam Adelson and the Adelson family will be the majority owners of the Dallas Mavericks, the team drafts everything else will be run still by Mark Cuban. Now, Mark, if you're out there watching the program, you know where to find us. Feel free to call in any time over the next 38 and a half or so minutes. We'd love to hear your take on this as well. And this is interesting because Mark Cuban also just announced recently that he is stepping down from Shark Tank after this upcoming season, which will be his 16th. So in a matter of two days, Mark Cuban says, you know what, last season of Shark Tank, I'm going to be selling my majority stake in the Dallas Mavericks and um, wonder what's going on. Maybe, who knows? Maybe Mark Cuban will run for president. You never know. Um, we're going to bring in a guest now, I believe, on, on the story. Is that right? All right. Uh, who, who apparently broke the news. I apologize. I'm just learning all this right now as we're going on. Senior NBA reporter for uh, the stadium and the athletic co-host of Run It Back on FanDuel. Um, uh, Sharon, thank you very much for coming on. Sorry, I'm, we're all kind of flying by the seat of our pants here. I didn't know you were coming on, so I apologize for that. Um, what's your take on what you just heard? Anything that you've learned, because you broke the story, that counters what I just said? Exactly. I mean, $3.5 billion valuation plus could be a little bit more than that. But Mark Cuban selling his majority stake. But this is one of the most unique deals in NBA history as far as ownership transfers, period, in the world of of the NBA. Because Mark Cuban is maintaining full control of basketball operations for the Mavericks moving forward. And he also, I'm told, maintained a stake in the team. So everything moving forward internally, basketball operations, Mark Cuban will continue to manage. And he still has a stake in the team. And in 2000, he sold the team or he bought the team for $285 million all these years later in 2023. He sells it for a valuation of $3.5 billion plus. And for Mark Cuban, I'm told several factors. The real estate component that the Adelson family can bring, they're, they've been a tycoon in the casino industry as well. And working and partnering with the Adelson family on real estate, on arena development, on casino planning and structuring within Dallas, within the Mavericks moving forward. Those are all important factors for Mark Cuban to have an ownership group come in and have a majority stake in the team. And also moving forward, uh, you know, it, it's a, it's a, going to be a much more competitive situation, I think, for the Mavericks to have this overhead and influx of cash coming in from the Adelson family. So it's an interesting thing, um, Shams. Thank you. And it, the valuation the point I was trying to make was that the valuation may seem a little low for a team, by the way, who's rolling like the Mavericks in a market like Dallas. Um, and it's because Mark Cuban is going to be running the operations. I don't you're, you're the expert in this kind of stuff. I don't think I've ever seen a deal structured like this. Like you're going to buy the team and own most of it, but I still run it. Well, let, let, let's look at two recent sales in the NBA right now. Michael Jordan selling the Charlotte Hornets. He maintains an alternate governor position. He's going he's gonna to still be around, still a factor, still has a minority stake. But their bass operations will be in control of the new incoming owners in Charlotte. And then Mark Lazary sells his stake for just over $3 billion in Milwaukee. Uh, to me, got a great deal, but he did not keep any shares in the Bucks as well as um, you know, full control of their operations. Obviously, he sold out, and now Mark Lazary is going to be a player, I think, to buy a professional sports team, whether it's in the NBA, whether it's another sport moving forward for years to come. But for Mark Cuban, in his mind, as far as the real estate development and the influx of cash that the Adelson family is going to be able to bring in, and the casino development, uh-huh. that's another big component uh-huh. for Dallas as well moving forward in the Mavericks. And so... Mark Cuban, but still, it's a landmark moment. Mark Cuban, one of the biggest spaces, obviously in business, but also in the NBA world, one of the more popular owners in league history. We've known about how many spats he got into with old commissioner David Stern. We know about his history. Uh, and, and really, I saw him the other night. He was sitting right alongside the bench in L.A. for their games against the Clippers, against the Lakers. He's still very much involved on this with the Mavericks. 
Yeah, I, I think you might have nailed Shams, the, the main aspect of this, which is this possible casino tie-in. Listen, it's very likely that Texas will approve uh, gaming. They may approve casino gambling. We're not really sure, but it's likely one or both of those things could happen. And if so, you've got effectively the largest casino operator in the United States coming into what could be a massive Dallas market for either gaming or, you know, just straight up casino gambling. This whole thing is starting to kind of come together from the outside in. Yeah, I mean, Mark Cuban essentially, like, let's look at this. He's getting a, a, a big chunk of cash right now for himself and also being inf infused into the team with the Adelson family, but is still maintaining basketball operations control and still a minority stake. And clearly the Adelson family is very, very much in tune with Mark, Mark Cuban's vision and also their vision. And I'm told this is something that's been in the works for the, for the majority of this year, 2023. I first got wind of it several months ago. So this is something that Mark Cuban has been working on and the Adelson family has been working on for several months now, if not the majority of 2023. Wow. Sean Sharonia uh, breaking the story minutes ago. It's all developing now. So we appreciate you kind of jumping on. Uh, Sean, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Let's bring in uh, Joe Pompliano for more reaction. Sports business and investor at Pomp Investments as well. Also host of the Joe Pomp Show. And we're kind of flying by the seat of our basketball shorts here. Joe, so you, <laughs> you saw how live TV is kind of working here. You heard what I said. You heard what Sham said. What's your take? Yeah, things are changing by the minute. But when this news came out from the regulatory filing, uh, you know, they didn't say a team, a league, a city or anything. So I'm going down the list in Las Vegas and I'm like, the Raiders don't really make sense. The Aces don't make sense. The A's don't make sense. The NBA team really doesn't even make sense from an expansion standpoint. So it's not necessarily surprising to see it somewhere else. Uh, the Mark Cuban aspect of this, I think, is really interesting because some more details are going to come out over the coming months, but this could end up being a really good deal for both sides. For Mark Cuban, he bought this team for $285 million in, in the year 2000. Obviously, they're selling at a $3.5 billion valuation now, so he's going to get a huge chunk of change put in his pocket. But as you mentioned before, he's also retaining control of the team, which is kind of unprecedented when it comes to sports sales. And then if you look at the flip side of this, the Adelson family, they're getting a discount, right? The Phoenix Suns just sold for $4 billion. The valuation on the Mavericks, uh, most people would have believed would have been higher. Obviously, part of that probably has to do with the fact that Mark Cuban is going to main control of the team. They also have five children in their family, two that are in their 20s. And I think this could be an asset that they're looking to hold on to for a long time here. Yeah, it truly is. And what do you make of the valuation, even with the unusual structure? Quickly, please, Joe. I, I lost you a little bit there, okay, but I think never, you were asking yeah. about the valuation, yeah. which is... Uh, which, which I think is is uh, a good value for the Adelson family. And you have to look at the NBA and kind of where the NBA is headed. There's obviously been some concerns about the local media rights and the RSNs and what their valuation could be long term. But the national media rights are currently being negotiated. Most people are expecting those to at least double over the next media rights deal, potentially triple, although I think that's a little bit less likely. So I think some people are going to look at this deal and say, maybe Mark Cuban wants the money to go do something else. Maybe he thinks that valuations have kind of flatlined for a period of time here. But it's impossible to speculate on that without talking to Cuban directly. What I do think is happening here is that the Adelson family wants to be involved with the NBA long term, and they saw an opportunity to enter the sport at a good valuation at $3.5 billion for a team in Dallas, which is obviously a huge metro market, rather than waiting around and seeing if one of these other teams might go up for sale in the future. Good stuff. Joe Pompliano, Pomp Investments. Joe, appreciate you popping on as well. Thank you very much. Thanks, Brian. I have a fast-moving show here on Last Call tonight. All right, still ahead. Have you added up all of your streaming video costs lately? Well, if not, if you haven't, you should, because we're going to show you some shocking numbers on how much they are going up in price. The crush of streamflation. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So Brainstorm got too big. Ooh. Summarize with AI in a click. Click, 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 click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. All right, welcome back on this very busy news night. Another major story is developing ahead of tomorrow. Apple sending a proposal 
to try to end its partnership on its credit card with Goldman Sachs. That, according to The Wall Street Journal, Steve Kovac is here with more on this breaking news. Uh, can we have more breaking news tonight, yeah. by the way? Steve, thanks for sticking this around. This is what's great about this business, right? So let me just give you a breakdown of what's going on here. Apple is trying to get out of that partnership with Goldman. Uh, WSJ reporting companies sent a term sheet to Goldman in an attempt to unwind the deal that started back in 2019 with the launch of, what else, the Apple Card. That partnership deepened in April of this year with the launch of a high-yield savings account that lets you take the cash back from the Apple Card, put it into a savings account with a 4% return. Apple said in August customers had already deposited $10 billion in those accounts. Apple and Goldman now have to work out the terms of an exit, which we're told could take over a year. In the meantime, those Goldman-backed Apple financial products, they're going to work as usual. It also marks the latest big step by Goldman to get out of the consumer banking experiment following significant losses. The Journal reported earlier this year, Apple may actually turn to Amex as a new partner for these products, but Apple and Goldman need to settle those terms to kill the partnership first. And of course, financial services, a growing part of Apple's overall services business with Wallet App, that's at the center of it. There's Apple Pay, the Goldman Apple Card and Savings Account, and a Buy Now Pay Later service that's funded by Apple itself, not to mention other wallet features like digital driver's license, gift cards, and so forth. By the way, just before I got on set, Brian, I mm-hmm. got a comment from Apple on this. Not really given much detail. Others saying they're focused on, quote, providing an incredible experience for our customers to help them lead a healthier financial lives. Not really talking about the future of the partnership, uh, mm-hmm. but going on to say they're still going to well, be I'm, together I'm glad for they're now. not trying to help them lead unhealthier yeah, financial exactly. lives. That would not be as good of a statement. So, but quickly then, it sounds like, and we're not, you know, whatever, the journal might have taken it a little too far. The pulling the plug might be a little strong. It sounds the like the plug this, has not been pulled. The plug has not been they're pulled. They're looking at the plug. They're, they're, they're thinking it's, it's about it. Stuck in the wall and they're trying to yank it out. The, but they but, are. But they yeah, want to. They want to. And also Goldman wants to as well. We know how that consumer business has been going. Well, if, if both sides want out, it should be able to figure it, it exactly. out. Exactly. It's a matter of. It's going to take a long time and, and a lot, lot of money. A lot of lawyers. Luckily, Apple has some money and some lawyers. I think to handle I, it. I would yeah. imagine they've got a little bit of both. Yeah. Exactly. Steve, appreciate you staying late. Appreciate you rolling with all the breaking news. Who knows what's going to happen next. Steve, thank you. All right, now let's talk streaming video because what we've been calling streamflation just won't stop. Just today, Apple TV raising its prices. The streaming service jumping up to $10 a month from $7. Doesn't seem like a lot, but actually it's a 40% increase. Apple also raised the price of its Apple One bundle by $5 a month to $37.99 for the big family plan. Now, Apple, of course, not alone. We're not picking on them. All the major streamers, including ours, have seen price hikes in recent years. Now, if you subscribe to some or maybe all of them, you've noticed the total price may really be starting to add up. We did the math so you don't have to. We looked at the top five streaming services, Netflix, Hulu, Peacock, Disney Plus, and ESPN Plus over the past two years. All five have gone up in price, but you may not realize just how much. So here you go. Adding up all the price increases, now these are the top tiers, no ads, stuff like that. Netflix, $275 a year now. Hulu, $216. Peacock, $144 worth every dime. Disney, $140. ESPN, $110. Add all those up and look at that box in the far right of your screen. You're going to be spending $886 a year on these five services that is 240 some bucks more than just two years ago. Nearly 250 more than just two years ago. Folks, that's an extra, call it, rounding up, $1,000 over just four years in increased cost. So, uh, wow, there you go. Uh, streamflation is a very real thing. And by the way, that doesn't even count. Some of the newer add-ons like the Max, HBO Max, you've got Paramount Plus, you got some of those. I mean, you could be spending, I don't know, 300 a month on just streaming, depending on what you have. Wow. All right, so how much higher can these prices go before people just start to think maybe cable is not a bad deal? Let's bring in our panel. That is Mountain President and CEO Mark Douglas and Senior Research Analyst at Needham & Company, Laura Martin. Hi, Laura. Hi, Mark. Hi. This, I want to be clear. We work for Comcast. They're our parent company. We put Peacock up there as well. This is not some cable homer. But, Mark, what I was trying to put out there was, you know, 
If you start to look at all these costs, some point the consumer is going to break. Yeah. And the, another way to look at it, you did it in annual costs, is if you add $1 a month to Disney Plus, they just raised their price by a dollar. That's $2 billion in incremental revenue annually for Disney. How much would they take $2 billion right now when they've been in cost-cutting mode for over a year? So, I mean, the, the, it doesn't sound a lot to the consumer. The way you laid it out, it does, but that's not the way it's presented. And and it's irresistible to these to these streamers to, yeah. to, to raise prices by a dollar or two dollars and rake in billions of dollars in pure profit as a result. Of well, that. I'll go back to you, Mark, because uh, I, we did that for a reason. When we put this piece together this morning or this afternoon, we're like, OK, should we do the monthly cost cycle? Ah, let's do the annual because that's if you yeah. keep it for a year. I, the point was that people I don't think people realize how expensive all of them together have become. But you're saying even a one dollar increase for Disney Plus means a lot to Disney. Yeah, because they have 150 million subscribers. So go. it's a dollar a month multiplied by 12, multiplied by 150 million. And that equals billions. And that's just them as an example. For Netflix, triple that. It would be 3 to $4 billion in incremental revenue for every dollar increase in the price of a subscription. So this is how is a media executive do you not go to that well over and over and over again until consumers yeah. just finally say enough? Uh, Laura, your comment on everything we discussed, and I'd also like you to talk about maybe what the apparent winner could be, and that is Roku. Right. Okay. So first of all, Average Home now has five streaming services and price increases on ad free pushes consumers to add tiers because ad tiers are typically four to five dollars cheaper a month. And when you add ads, it actually comes out to more money for the Peacocks, for the Comcast or for the Disney because they can sell more ad units. Right. And they can expand ad units. Uh, like at this time of year, ad units are really in demand because we're going into Black Friday, Cyber Monday, and eventually Christmas. So actually, by raising your price the way Netflix is, you're on purpose pushing consumers to the ad-driven tier with ads, which makes them more money. One of the key implications. Yeah. How far can they go? I think exactly to your point. We're all going to get pushed back to cable because right now, if it averages five services and you're paying 50 to 60 bucks unless you want to downgrade to have ads in your tier, you may as well go back to cable and get sports because really video, the add up is like 70 bucks on top of your modem. So it's almost, we're almost equidistant to, to cable, except they have heavier ad loads, but they do have all the sports and everything's in one place. Yeah, it's, it is truly amazing. And I think the numbers that you just got, both of you just threw out there, uh, probably a wake up call for a lot of people. And you wonder just how many people are going to quit this. Then they find a show they like, they sign up and they cancel it and they only get a month worth of revenue. The industry, Laura and Mark, I think you both can agree, is in a really weird time. We appreciate your views. We'll get you back on again. Thank you. All right. Speaking of transitions. The political push to force you to buy an electric car in many states hitting another little bit of a speed bump. In fact, thousands of auto dealers are now calling for President Biden to, quote, tap the brakes on the unrealistic government electric vehicle mandate. Their words. With us tonight is one of those dealership owners, the owner of Celebrity Motor Cars, Tom Maoli. Tom, um, it, this isn't like you and a couple other people, right? I mean, this is a lot of no, car this is, dealers this is writing this letter to the White House. Yes, good to see you. This is thousands. This is thousands of dealerships that, that represent multiple brands, not just one brand, domestic, um, you know, international brands, um, and, you know, all across the board. Um, and this is basically the voice of the consumer. This is not the dealer. This is the voice of the consumer. And what's happening is the manufacturer is being forced to produce these EVs. They're shipping them to the dealerships and they're backing up on the lots. You know, our, our average day supply pre-COVID was 60 to 90 days supply of inventory. During COVID, it was less than 30 because of the supply chain issues. We're now backed up up to 12 months with EVs. Consumers don't want them. They're not buying them. We have up to $15,000 in rebates from the manufacturer yeah. and $7,500 tax credits. We're talking $22,500. You, you, and, well, and people, they think I'm some EV hater. I've owned an EV. I've driven many of them. I'm not. In fact, I've been poking around because I think they're very cool in, in many different ways. 
I was looking at a Ford F-150 Lightning, and I saw something, yeah. and you have a Ford dealership, that, I, and it wasn't yeah. on your website. It was on cars.com. I don't know who the dealer was. Should have been on my site. Yeah, go well, I'll go back. I'll go back. Okay, but the, the Lightning retails for what, 95 new, something like that? Yes. Okay, right. I saw brand new F-150 Lightning. I mean, like 23 miles on it yes. for 78000 It had been Correct. marked down $20,000. Yes. How is that Correct. possible? Still can't sell it. Consumer doesn't want it. The consumer's in fear over the infrastructure. The infrastructure is not there. The what you know, the White House and and the, the Biden administration and and got it way out over its skis with this mandate. And the consumer has to buy into it, and they're not. And the problem that exists now is you know they force the manufacturers to spend all this money to build these plants and produce these vehicles, but the consumers aren't buying into it. You know they're afraid of range. They're afraid of where they're going to charge. And we're not talking about you know listen. Tesla is a vanity purchase. People have to have a Tesla. They have a second vehicle. You know, most people can't afford the first vehicle, never mind the second vehicle. And these people are coming out yeah. to the dealerships and they're buying these vehicles and they're afraid. You know, th- these are average working American people. They're putting their families in the car. Moms are driving their kids to school. Dads have to get to work. And, you know, if they if they have to charge on the road and it takes 30 Can minutes you, to charge. Tom, we're running out of time, Tom. I'm sorry to interrupt for a crazy night. Can you kill them? Yes. Can you kill them, myth? Because there's going to be people on Twitter that pop up after this segment and say, dealers hate them because they're not getting the services no, revenue. That, it's not, I, I, I it's talk not. to car dealers almost every day. It's I got friends that own them, and we, they make a ton of money on EV service because the we, EV costs are much higher. The windshield in, a, in an EV is like 5000 yeah. bucks. Listen, we're either going to sell EVs, we're going to sell gas vehicles, or we're going to sell hybrids. We're going to sell something. We believe in EVs. They're a part of the market, but it has to evolve, and they're not letting it evolve. So this is not like we just hate them because they don't need oil changes, no, right? No, no, not at all. No, we want to sell EVs, but they have to evolve. You have to let the market evolve and the infrastructure evolve, yep. not shove it down the consumer's throat. That's it. Well, and you know, the guys, a lot of these people making these decisions on a state level are driving around in suburbans well, with like 17 Secret Service people. I'm not sure the last time they drove themselves. Tom, we're going to well, leave listen. it. We're going to, we got to leave it there. We'll get you back on. We appreciate Good it. Good to see you. Ton of breaking news. Everything's all squeezed up. All right, coming up. Yeah. Billionaire investor Bill Ackman just out with a big call on the Federal Reserve. Tim Seymour, Lauren Goodwin here with their takes next. I know you're not having deja vu. We've got a bonus tomorrow's news tonight for you. And it's kind of a big one for the markets. Bloomberg reporting that Bill Ackman is betting heavily the Federal Reserve will cut rates as soon as the first quarter. That is sooner than most investors expect. The news comes amid a big surge for stocks, in parts maybe on hope of lower rates. In fact, the major index is having their best month this year. For more on all of this, the markets and your money, let's bring in our A-list. A-list is offensive. It's an A-plus list. Okay. Okay. I would never just give you an A. Tim Seymour, founder and CEO of Seymour Asset Management, CNBC Fast Money Trader, and New York Life Investments Economist and Director of Portfolio Strategy, Lauren Goodwin. Thanks for, for coming on set. Uh, Tim, Ackman's call. Uh, and we don't know what he might be trading around on this. Let's be clear. He's traded Treasuries fantastically. Well, he made I mean, a he's, fort- another fortune this he, year. He's had two bites on the cherry in each direction. Anyway, your question was. What do you make of the call? Well, I mean, you know the band The Scorpions, the song Wins the Change? Does that song mean anything to you? <laughs> There's a great podcast on that. Today. By the way, I, do you believe that the CIA? By the way, I had actually, no idea that was coming. <laughs> and I'm a really good whistler. I think I cannot whistle you. That's okay. This is this, what are you making the call? Just devolving. Anyway, um, the winds of change. I mean, you know, it, I think I think Ackman almost said the same thing that Waller was saying today, mm-hmm. um, who elicited the Taylor rule, which basically is uh, well, we won't do that here. here. Otherwise, you know, we're going to need to whistle people back awake. But but ultimately, the fact that uh, if the Fed is not cutting rates when inflation is falling, passively policy has become more restrictive. That that is both what Ackman has said, Waller, who's been quite hawkish um, and and at least today uh, moved the bond market. Yeah. I mean, move, move, you know, two year notes, uh, 13 basis points. So, um, it, you know, I don't think this is a big surprise uh, in the sense that you already had a 50 percent priced in uh, rate cut in May on Monday. Today, it's 80 percent or so. So um, but, uh, you know, amazing how quickly the rates environment has changed. But if to, to, to Tim's point, Lauren, if Ackman is right, the bond market, and you work for an insurance company, like you guys are the super tankers. You don't move 
a lot, but when you do... That's a compliment. There, yeah, there's a giant yeah, wake, right? When the insurance companies move because you need to adjust your credit profile and your, your time risk, everything shifts. Yeah, look, when we're thinking about the path of rates in 2024, if the Fed is cutting in Q1, it's because inflation is slowing and for that to be durable, growth also has to be slowing. So I expect for the next few months, while we see if that's actually the case, we're living in a Fed relief rally. Risk assets are likely to perform well. But if growth is slowing on the back end of that, then that's not as, uh, as constructive as a story. So investors have to be incredibly agile and tactical in this, what I would call a late cycle. What are though. we being tactical to? Well, you're being tactical to this balance between a soft landing, which is, from my perspective, a moment in time on the way towards a harder landing. If, for example, you see inflation moving lower, the Fed cuts rates in March, if we don't have significant evidence that inflation can continue moving lower, mm. then the financial markets are likely to continue rallying. Powell has made a huge point about how loosening market financial conditions are bad news yeah. for them. Well, the, the, so the question is, how long do we have this window? Because, you know, here we are. I, I'd make an argument that the jobless you know, dynamics or jobless claims certainly haven't really given a lot of ground. Uh, if you didn't have a larger participation rate in the, in the job force, we'd probably still be at record unemployment. So if the Fed's targeting the job market and, you know, look, we're getting all our reads on holiday shopping. Uh, I think that the, the practical reality is that risk assets have some runway here. And, and this is coming after a 14 percent move in the Nasdaq and 20 sessions. Well, so I mean, guess we've had a big move. If we could fast, let's fa we're going to fast money up this show for the next wow, 90 seconds I mean, or so. That's, that's a big compliment. statement. One thing I will say, the market's been great, except, you know, we know the seven magnificent seven. But, you know, there's certain things that are happening, Tim, that bother me. Like Lucid was like the second best stock on the NASDAQ 100. GameStop calls went up like tenfold today. So some of the more risky yeah, like, of the I, risk I, I on GameStop and a lot of the, the ape stuff is, is a joke. What, what you are seeing, though, if rates are coming down, you're lighting a fire under high multiple tech. And, and you've had an environment. I mean, look at the move. I realize Bitcoin's had a big rally. Look at the move in Coinbase. Forty percent this month. Yeah. Well, and, and again, it makes sense given you know the environment we've had. And those stocks have had cycles. And remember that a lot of those stocks bottomed, bottomed first, had a big rally, were sold off into that rate environment, and and it gives some life. But the the barbell strategy, I think, for the next two, three, whatever we mm -hmm. have months. And I, and I do think there's a window, and I kind of agree with Lauren, and, and it's not grudgingly, by the way. I, I agree with Lauren. Um, but because I, I don't think this window lasts forever. I think, yeah. I think we are, the, the leading indicators tell you what they're telling you. Yeah, and, and when it comes to navigating that window, if you expect that you have a couple of months, and I agree, then you can use the lift that we're getting from risk assets to rebalance to more durable themes. Yeah. So that's not only defensive sectors or large caps or the sort of traditional defensive playbook, but it's also the quality themes that have emerged over the course of the pandemic, higher quality and high yield, for example, mm -hmm. infrastructure equity that's getting a boost from both the private and the public sector. Those are areas where we expect to see a little more resilience over the course of the next year. Good stuff. And if you say barbell strategy again, I'm going to coin this the Jack LaLanne market. All right, but that's I brought, a, that's an old, I bring the scorpions old. to the show. That's tonight, very good. Stuff. Tim <laughs> Seymour, Lauren Goodwin, thank you for bringing yourselves to the show. Great tonight. to be here. Appreciate that. All right. Nice. All right, we're going to go back now to the big story in the markets and a much more somber note. Legendary investor and Berkshire Hathaway vice chair Charlie Munger has passed away at the age of 99. All right. And in addition to... Uh, to being Warren Buffett's chief of staff and vice chair of Berkshire Hathaway, he was also just a guy that many market watchers listened to raptfully. Let's bring in, uh, well, we're going to, all right. Listen, listen to some quotes from, from Charlie Munger. The way to get a good partner was to be a good partner. And these are very old-fashioned ideas. And they just work so fabulously well. I would rather throw a viper down my shirt front than hire a compensation consultant. Well, I think he's demented. You can't form a business partnership with your shriftless, drunken brother-in-law, you know I mean? Bitcoin is worthless artificial gold. I think I should say modestly that I think the whole damn development is disgusting and contrary to the interests of civilization. I'm quite comfortable holding Berkshire. I, I think our businesses are better than the average in the market. 
There you go. Some words of wisdom from Charlie Munger. Now let's bring in Josh Brown. He's the uh, CEO and co-founder of Ritholtz Wealth Management, obviously a CNBC contributor. Uh, Josh, we appreciate you coming on uh, Last Call. I know it's been a long day for you. Your thoughts on Charlie Munger. I mean, amazing guy. So I love the witticisms that you just played. Uh, and, and I've got a signed copy of Poor Charlie's Almanac on my desk. Um, but I think the, the thing that we should probably close out tonight with, Brian, is to just talk about how instrumental he was in the success at Berkshire Hathaway. To refer to him merely as vice chair would be to significantly downplay his true contribution. Prior to Warren Buffett meeting Charlie Munger at a party in 1959, Charlie's, uh, Warren's main investment strategy was something that he learned from Ben Graham, which was cigar butt style investing. He would basically be looking for dirt cheap prices, even if a company didn't have a long runway, to get that last puff of the cigar. It's Charlie Munger who convinced him it was time to change course and rather than try to buy good businesses at a fair valuation, buy, buy wonderful businesses instead, even if you have to pay up a little bit. And that's where you get Coca-Cola and you get uh, some of the big winners, American Express, Apple, a more recent example, probably Costco. their biggest success story ever in the equity portfolio. That's why Charlie was, uh, was on the board of Costco. Um, and so that mentality, that shift that uh, Warren Buffett wholly credits Charlie Munger for is, I think, the thing that every investor should understand, respect, learn the history of, uh, because had it yeah. not happened, Warren Buffett probably ends up like a lot of other value investors from the 1960s uh, in obscurity, where none of us ever hear about them again. It's amazing. So, so Josh, uh, Charlie was absolute goat. If I have not read that book, but, but if, it's, if I'm hearing you right, Charlie Munger, to your point, completely changed the way that Warren Buffett invested. In fact, I guess if I'm hearing you're saying the Warren Buffett we know of today may not exist because he was just a different type of investor before Charlie. So Charlie, Charlie says Warren would have succeeded with or without him. And actually, Charlie's wife asked him at this party in, in Omaha, why are you talking to that guy all night? And Charlie said, you don't understand. That's not an ordinary human. And Charlie points out in most rooms he walks into, no one in that room, you know, he can stand toe to toe with anyone in there intellectually, except when he's with Warren Buffett. So Warren was extraordinary. Charlie was not, was, was not the sole reason for his success. But that mentality shift is what led them to make their best investments ever. I think the other notable thing worth pointing out at Charlie is he never changed. We've got... Uh, they, they weren't really famous until the 80s. So the stuff in the 60s and 70s, a lot of it is apocryphal. But in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s, there were a lot of opportunities for there to be a pivot where they start chasing semiconductor stocks yeah. or they, they launch a SPAC or they do a closed-end bond fund. They never changed. They always stuck to what they knew best. They were the best ever at it as a duo. And even individually, if you're doing the Mount Rushmore of long-term investors, business people, um, they get two of the spots. They don't share one. They each get one. Charlie Munger's yeah. on Mount Rushmore. I don't think anyone who's a serious investor would disagree. Certainly a mountain of an investor and one, uh, I think you, you laid it out beautifully. Josh Brown, we appreciate your, your insight into Charlie Munger's passing. Josh, thank you very much. Folks, that's it. Charlie Munger passing away at, at 99. Uh, much more coverage shortly tomorrow morning, starting at 5 a.m. Worldwide Exchange. And no doubt Becky will have much more on her, on her friend, on her friend. Charlie Munger passed away at 99. What a turn 100, January 1st. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.